All right. We are starting today the last point of our outline in the book of Romans. Two years later, right? Paul's concluding mandate. That doesn't mean he's going on dates with males. That's not what that's talking about. Mandates. Uh, Paul's concluding mandates, which will run from chapter 15, verse 14, through chapter 16, verse 27. We're really, we've seen the introduction and the body of the letter. Now we're kind of in the closing, postscript type thing. But, now listen, don't tune out on me. Don't think, well, this is just blah, 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 and, you know, in a letter. No, it's hardly, hardly that. There's a lot of meat still on this bone, so we're going to keep on gnawing, hopefully. Um, as we start this morning into the message, if you were to ask people who know football, American football, not football, but football, if you were to ask people who knew American football pretty well who the greatest receiver, wide receiver of all time may be, you, you might get a few different answers, but I'd say ultimately, somewhere along the way, you'd either hear this man's name once or a thousand times. Okay? Jerry Rice. Somewhere along the way, the, the smart people would say that. I'm not a 49ers fan, but this guy here, he was the best. He's widely considered to be the greatest wide receiver in the history of the National Football League. He won three Super Bowls. And he holds nearly every single season and career receiving record available. He's the NFL's all-time leader in yards, receptions, and touchdowns. You're like, I don't care. Stay with me, okay? Many experts say he may be the best football player ever, regardless of position. Basically, they say Rice was a once-in-a-lifetime talent, literally the best of the best. But how did he become the best? I found this write-up on him on jamesclear.com where he quoted from a book called Talent is Overrated. This is what, the, what he says on the website and in the book. In team workouts, Rice was famous for his hustle. While many receivers would trot back to the quarterback after catching a pass, Rice would sprint to the end zone after each reception. He would typically continue practicing long after the rest of the team had gone home. Most remarkable were his six days a week off-season workouts, which he conducted entirely on his own. Mornings were devoted to cardiovascular work, running a hilly five-mile trail. He would reportedly run 10 40-meter wind sprints up the steepest part of the hill. In the afternoons, he did equally strenuous weight training. These workouts became legendary as the most demanding in the league and other players would sometimes join Rice just to see what it was like. Some of them got sick before the day was over. But the interesting thing about Jerry Rice is Rice is missing probably the key ingredient for a good wide receiver, the speed. He wasn't very fast. The classic test for speed in the NFL is the 40-yard dash. Before being drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, Rice was reported as running the 40 in 4.7 seconds. Now, for reference, in 2014, which was many years later, there were multiple quarterbacks and even a defensive lineman 
that posted faster times than that. And yet, it is unlikely that any of these players will have a career half as prolific as that of Jerry Rice. Compared to other wide receivers, Rice's mediocre speed could be seen as a weakness. But how did he overcome it? By leveraging his greatest strengths. Still quoting from the book here. We're almost done with the introduction. He designed his practice to work on his specific needs. Rice didn't need to do everything well, just certain things. He had to run precise patterns. He had to evade the defenders, sometimes two or three, who were assigned to cover him. He had to out-jump them to catch the ball and out-muscle them when they tried to strip it away. Then he had to outrun tacklers. So he focused his practice work on exactly these requirements. Did you hear what I just said? Not being the fastest receiver in the league turned out not to matter. He became famous for the precision of his patterns. His weight training gave him tremendous strength. His trail running gave him control so he could change direction suddenly without signaling his move. The uphill wind sprints gave him explosive acceleration. And most of all, his endurance training, not something that a speed-focused athlete would normally concentrate on, gave him a giant advantage in the fourth quarter when his opponents were tired and weak and he seemed as fresh as he was in the first minute. Time and again, that's when he put the game away. Rice and his coaches understood exactly what he needed in order to be dominant. They focused on these things and not on other goals that might have seemed generally desirable like speed. Hmm. Tuck that away. We'll get back to that. We're going to read today from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. And by the grace of God, we will finish 14 through 21 today. So if you would stand, we'll read this together. And we stand because we believe these are the very words of God. And that's pretty awesome, y'all. So again, not just rote, not just routine, not just, okay, here's where we stand up. But we stand as a way of saying, God, we reverence Your words. Romans 15, 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Let me pray. God, we ask for and we expect the power of Your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to give us the grace and the power that we need to live out what we hear today. We trust You. You are faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You are sovereign over Your Word. And we trust You now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We'll start in verse 14, since it's the first one, right? 
I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Notice that construction real quick. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves. I don't know what that means, but it's something in there. I myself, you yourselves. But Paul has reached the end of the body of the letter. So now he begins in what we're calling, I'm going to call, you don't have to call it that, what I'm going to call a postscript of sorts that runs through the end of chapter 16, the end of the letter. Something to think about and consider here as we start in on this postscript is that Paul has not been to Rome at this point. He don't know these people. He knows some of them. We'll see that as he goes through the list of names in chapter 16. But he's not been there at this point. And he has not seen this church with his own eyes. He knows some folks there. But this letter is written to a church that he neither started nor had anything to do with in establishing. Many of those in the church in Rome had never seen Paul face to face. Now, imagine one day you get up and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you go over to the post office or walk out to your mailbox and there's a letter from somebody you've never met. You might have heard of them, but you don't know them. And they send you something the magnitude of Romans. And you're like, what in the world? And some of the stuff you're reading seems a little harsh, right? How long did we spend talking about weak and strong? And put your beer away if it offends your brother. Don't smoke that cigar if it's going to offend your brother. From somebody that you don't even know? Seems a little bold, don't you think? Seems a little overly strong, it would seem. He don't know these people. Now imagine being Jewish as well and getting this letter because he said some pretty harsh things about the Jewish race, Jewish people, Jewish customs, and he was a Jew himself. And so a lot of these things could really come off as at least inappropriate and maybe even angry or hateful. Imagine him sending it now and the press getting a hold of it. Lord have mercy, he'd be a racist and he'd be, yeah, they'd call him Hitler and never mind. Who does this guy Paul think that he is? And I think Paul realizes this and works to set things right as he ends his letter. Here in verse 14, he reassures the church in Rome that his faith in them is strong. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. This is his way of saying that he knows that God has placed them in that body in such a way so as to be able to build themselves up. He calls them brothers, which shows his kinship and his equality with them. He wasn't some high potentate, you better listen to me because I'm a priest of God and you're just lowly common people. He calls them brothers. Listen to me church, we're all priests. There's no priestly order. I'm in no way. Don is in no way. The deacons are in no way over you all. No way, shape, or form. We have authority and a role to play, but as far as who's closer to God and who has more of a right to the presence of God, we're all equal. That's what Jesus did for us. And He made us a kingdom of priests to His God. There is no hierarchy. There is no 
priesthood, separation of priesthood in the body of Christ. We're all priests. So Paul calls them brothers, and that's what we are. He addresses them as those that are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. Now this surely doesn't mean that they can't learn and grow. He's just saying they have the teaching of Jesus and Jesus is saving ministry as well as Paul does. Paul is no more saved. Paul is no better. Paul is no smarter than they are. And he also says he knows they are able to instruct one another. So he's not saying that his letter is any better than their teaching to and for one another. He is admonishing them and encouraging them that they have all they need in their body and God can use them to encourage and build one another up. He trusts them and their God to build their body up whether Paul ever comes there or not. Actually, he's coming to raise some support. He wants to go to Spain. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to swing by. If you guys could help me out, that would be great. Okay, this is a missionary letter. We'll talk about that later in 16. So he knows the sufficiency of the local body of believers and God's plan for them. Listen, we have everything we need here. God has placed us in this body as He has seen fit. And we're glad. And we say, God, it's good. Not to say that we we don't want anybody else to come in. We do. But we have everything we need by the grace of God. The sufficiency of the local body of believers in God's plan. Paul's making it clear that he is neither exalted over them nor is he in any way placing himself in a position of authority over them. He literally had no authority over them. He was apostolic in his authority, but he did not control the church in Rome. He trusted them and he trusted God to do that. Next verse. Sorry. But (laughs) on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder... Because of the grace given me by God. Knowing they are all equal, and knowing that he's written a pretty heavy letter, Paul explains why. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. This is another way to say, hey, you probably know all of this, but maybe you didn't fully understand it, so I wrote this to remind you in a strong way. Paul acknowledges that some of what he has said is very bold. The Greek word for very boldly is tomeros, and it's from two Greek words that mean not to be afraid or to shun out of fear. He doesn't know them, but he is not afraid to remind them so pointedly. Why? Because of the grace given me by God. Paul's lack of fear, Paul's boldness comes from God's grace. He can speak plainly and powerfully because God empowers him to, and that power is laced with... That power is seasoned with grace, which makes me think of Colossians 4, 3 through 6. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious speech, whether to those inside or outside the church, is clear. Gracious speech is how we ought to speak. Gracious speech is wise, and gracious speech is so seasoned that it helps us know how to answer each person. And Paul knew this, so he spoke boldly, without fear, because he knew that what he was speaking was literally grace-empowered. 
Paul was emphasizing this as he refers to his boldness. But there's more to this grace than just how Paul talked. Verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to back up a little bit and piece what was said at the end of verse 15 to the beginning of verse 16. and It goes like this. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's, that, that's a ton of words right there. And there's so much packed into this. Let's see if we can unpack it some. First thing to note is that this verse is directly linked back to the previous verse. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Paul knows and he shows that the ministry that he has is given to him by the grace of God. And that word minister there is a little different than the usual word because usually when we see the word minister it simply means servant. This word is a little different. It means a public or a military laborer. There's a thought of servant in it, but it's not like a house servant or a slave. This is a visible, active public worker. Sometimes you hear people calling police officers public servants. That's what's being implied here. This is not somebody that's in a house somewhere. This is somebody that's out in the open with a lot of responsibility, and that's what Paul is saying that he is. He says he's a minister, a public minister, a very visible, active public worker. I'd say Paul fits that bill pretty well. But what work is he doing in public? He is laboring to administer Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, what's that mean? Paul's calling from the outset of his ministry was to go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is a Jew. And if you read through the book of Acts, you see Peter having some interaction with God about going to the Gentiles. God says, go to this guy's house, Cornelius. You're going to preach to him and his buddies. They're Gentiles. And Peter's like, oh, no, no, no. We don't go into Gentiles' homes. He has a vision of some unclean animals that come down. And God says, what I have called clean, don't call unclean. So Peter goes, he preaches the gospel. Cornelius and a lot of people that are there get saved. And the Holy Spirit falls on them in the same way that it fell on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. So now Paul has this Damascus Road experience. If you don't know about Paul's conversion, Paul was traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians and have them put in jail. Men, women, and children didn't care. If they were Christians, they were going to jail because they were dogs. And they deserved death because they weren't honoring God. They were Christians. They were members of the way, is what he said. So he's on his high horse, literally. And he's traveling up the road. And this bright light comes down from heaven. And it's Jesus. The risen Christ. The revealed Christ. And he says, Paul, actually he says, Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, who is also called Saul, says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, meaning when you persecute my people, you persecute me. Paul falls off his horse and he's blinded. Now, just that's amazing, first of all. So he travels on up to Damascus being led by the hand because he can't see. Then this guy named Ananias, who's a devout follower of God, also a Jew, hears from God directly and God says, I want you to go and I want you to pray for this man Saul. He's waiting for you. Ananias says, whoa, whoa, I've heard about this guy. He was coming up here to arrest us. 
because we follow Jesus. I don't know if I want to do that or not. This is what God tells Ananias about Paul. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So before Paul ever knew it, God was declaring to Ananias, this guy Saul, Paul, he's called different things at different times. We know him as Paul predominantly. This guy is going to be, he's going to carry my name before the Gentiles. So Ananias goes and he prays for him. He receives his sight. And then he has to sneak out of Damascus because even then the Jews start trying to kill him. So from the outset, his ministry was to the Gentiles predominantly. He himself, Paul, says this in Galatians 2, 6-9, through 9, "...and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, or His gospel that He received is what He's saying. On the contrary, when I saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul knew his role. He said, and then he tried to go to the Jews on all of his trips that we see in Acts, but they always kicked him out of the synagogue. And he said, fine, I'll go preach to the Gentiles. So that was Paul's calling from the outset of his ministry. And he knew it. He was working to minister Christ to the Gentiles. So if we go back here to where we were in Romans, in verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about there. In the priestly service of the gospel of God. So what's he doing with these Gentiles? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now it's pretty big, y'all. We talked about the minister part and the Gentiles part, but look at what's next. In the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, Paul refers to priestly service. We said earlier that Paul saw the Roman church as brothers and that he wasn't elevated above them and there's not a different classification for priests and laymen anywhere in the Bible, positively. In the New Testament, let me say it that way. So here is, is something different. Is, all of a sudden, is he a priest and he's above the common people? And the answer to that is absolutely not. He's not a priest to people here. What's he a priest of? The priestly service of the gospel of God. Notice the wording there. He's doing priestly service with and by the gospel to present the Gentiles to God as an offering. You get that? You see the difference? He's not a priest who takes the Word of God and goes to the people of God and says, you've got to listen to me because I'm the only one who knows anything about God. Instead, he's bringing the people of God to God and saying, this is my priestly offering to you, God. That's a world of difference. Okay? What is he offering? The offering is the Gentiles he was sent to and entrusted with. He's doing priestly service with and by the gospel to present the Gentiles to God as an offering. And that offering is acceptable to God. Why? Because it is sanctified, which means set apart. Who's it sanctified by? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's not Paul 
Paul doesn't make this work sanctified. The Holy Spirit makes the, this work, these Gentiles sanctified. God the Holy Spirit sets these Gentiles apart as He opens their ears and hearts to the gospel that Paul is preaching. And that's crazy important. Okay, Paul preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the work of setting them apart. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work of saving them. Who did Paul save? No one. Who do we save? No one. What do we do? We preach the gospel. And watch what the Holy Spirit does. If the Holy Spirit doesn't sanctify the offering, it is dung before the Lord. That's pretty big. God the Holy Spirit sets the Gentiles apart, opens their ears and their hearts to the gospel that Paul is preaching. No other offering can be accepted by God or pleasing to God unless the Holy Spirit sets a person apart by regenerating them Nothing they do is pleasing to God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. All that a sinner can do is sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hasn't set them apart, them. So their works are not sanctified. Only, listen to me, if you're taking notes, write this down. Only the work of God can please God. Only the work of God can please God. So Paul says, I preach the gospel and I offer the Gentiles and this offering is acceptable because this offering is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Be careful trying to work for God. So much here, but let's move on. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work. God. You're like, now wait a minute. He just said what you said different. But, but he doesn't agree with you. Yeah, he does. Stay with me. Paul knows that his work is pleasing to God because he knows that the gospel, he knows that the work of the Holy Spirit, and he knows that these that are born again, these Gentiles, are where? In Christ Jesus. And since that is true, Paul is proud of his work. His work for God, His labor done in Christ, brings Him pride. It's not arrogant, self-inflating pride, but pride in who God is and what God is doing in and through Him. Paul knew his limitations. He knew his past. He knew it was all God and that God was doing something and if God didn't do something, nothing got done. Paul would refer to himself later in his life as the chief of sinners. He didn't hope to do something for God. He prayed and he hoped that God would do something through him. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there is reason to be proud of the work that you're doing for God if it is in Christ Jesus. But it has to be in Christ Jesus. Paul knew his past. He knew it was all God and that God was doing something. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-11 For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Beating your breast? Nope. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul says, it's not me. It's what God did. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace of God that is with me is why people believed. That's what matters. Again, be very careful trying to work for God. Next two verses. and He digs a little deeper to show what God has done through him. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Whoa. (laughs) That's a big bunch of stuff here, y'all. He says he knows that he's done nothing to speak of, but that he will speak of what Christ has accomplished through him. Will you boast of what you've done? I hope not. But I do pray that you will boast in what Christ has done through you. Because that's what Paul's saying here. I will not venture to speak of anything. He won't talk about the blisters on his feet and how long he walked and how many miles and being dropped down in a basket. And oh, poor Paul, and he's worked so hard. Feel sorry for Paul because he's had it rough on this road time and time and time again. No. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You folks that worked the day of hope yesterday, wasn't easy. Got up early. Of course, not as early as you do when you go to work, but got up early. It's hot. I bet some of them people probably didn't smell real good. Just a guess. Wasn't necessarily what you'd want to do on a Saturday afternoon, morning afternoon. And you could come home and you could say, man, let me tell you what all I did. Man, I'm wore out. Slap out. Man, I can't. Man. Paul says, none of that. None of that. I'll not venture to speak of anything. How hard I worked, how bad it was, how good it was necessarily. I won't speak of any of that except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's all I'm going to talk about. That's all I'm focused on. And be encouraged, Christian, because... That same Christ, that same Holy Spirit, the same God that had plans for Paul and worked through him is doing the same things in us and through us. Now take that in for a second. What we do may look different than what Paul did. I'm sure it does. But that in no way minimizes who God is and what He's doing in and through us. Because what's the goal? What's the outcome? To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now listen. Conversion is shown in obedience. You tell me you got saved once way back in the day? Maybe you did. If you did, it's going to show in your obedience. And your obedience to who? Your obedience to the Lord. Tim Keller puts it this way. And I posted on Facebook the other day, people have not been, quote, evangelized until they have ceased to be their own masters and become joyful servants of the Lord. Paul says he wouldn't speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to conversion, to making a decision, 
to saying a sinner's prayer, to getting baptized. No. He says that what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles, the unbelievers, to obedience. If you are born again, you will be obedient to your Lord. And Jesus Christ is your Lord if you are born again. Don't tell me about your conversion. Show me. Tell me too. But show me in being obedient to Jesus Christ. Conversion is shown in obedience. We show we are saved by becoming obedient to our Lord. And how does Paul bring about this obedience? How does Christ work in Paul to bring about this obedience? Now what we're going to see quickly in 18 and 19, we're going to see three things that Paul did to bring about obedience. He says, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Three things. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now each of those is a sermon in themselves, but I won't do that to you this morning. We'll look at them succinctly for now. First, word and deed. And let me just say this about word and deed. It is imperative that we do both. We have to use words and we have to use deeds in order to communicate the gospel. But now let me ask you a question. Is one more important than the other? Yeah, you bet it is. Let's rewind to yesterday about this time. Some folks are over at the Day of Hope. I keep bringing it up because it's very pertinent. What if you gave them a sack of groceries? What if you gave them a filling? What if you put shoes on their feet, clothes on their back, hat on their head, pat them on the back, say, have a great day? Have you done anything to save them? It's a tough question. If you do nothing else... They can't be saved. Why? Because you have not preached the gospel to them. Which is what is so encouraging about what Bob and Mary do with CEF. It's a gospel-centered ministry. We can meet practical needs all day long, and we should. But if that's all we do, we send field-clothed people to hell. Without the gospel, our deeds in and of themselves are worthless. We do not preach a social gospel here where all you got to do is be nice to people and live like Jesus so that people see your good works. You should do that. Jesus said, Matthew 5, to let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's necessary, but it's not enough. He says, by word and by deed. Emphasis on word. We have to preach the gospel. We must operate in deeds and words. Yes, we have to live the gospel and love people practically, but we also have to preach the gospel. All of yesterday, day of hope is pointless. No, all of yesterday saves no one at the day of hope if somebody's not there preaching the gospel. It's not pointless and it's not hopeless. It may be an indicator and a signpost to lead them to somebody, but the signpost is going to point to somebody who preaches the gospel to them. Word is more important. That's the economy that God has set up. How can they hear unless somebody's preaching? We saw that back in Romans 10, right? 
We cannot be saved apart from hearing the gospel. So yeah, one is more important than the other. Word and deed. Being nice, being helpful, meeting practical needs is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It has to be partnered with the words of the gospel, spoken or communicated by words to those who receive the physical goods we may give them. John Piper puts it this way, The deeds have a supporting role. They are not the direct means of saving people the way that the Word is. Deeds cannot tell the story of the death and resurrection of Christ with its saving meaning. Only words can. So the deeds have value as they confirm the Word. End of quote. So much more to say here, but we've got to move on. What do the deeds look like? The next thing Paul mentions is, by the power of signs and wonders. These are the three things that he's done to the deeds that he's done, the things that he's done to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I just said signs and wonders, didn't I? Now Paul was an apostle. And the office of apostle was verified by signs and wonders. Now how do I know that? 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says to the Corinthians, "...the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." So this verse makes it clear that true apostles did signs and wonders and mighty works. Okay? But the question we have to ask ourselves here today is, dun, 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 are there still signs and wonders today? And I probably just split y'all straight down the middle. Because the question that we have to ask ourselves is, should our gospeling, our preaching be marked by the same? And I think the answer is no and yes. Let me try to quickly explain and justify that answer. The apostles occupied a very specific and special office and function in the plan of God. They were given very specific and very special grace to do things others did not or do not do. That's what Paul's talking about in saying the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Apostolic signs and wonders ended with the apostles, which means those that were given that title, that office by Christ Himself, once they died, the apostolic office ceased. So the apostolic signs and wonders ceased. Some of you are mad at me. Stay with me. I said the answer was no and yes. Should we, in our gospeling, ask God to perform signs and wonders? Yes. Not the signs and wonders of an apostle. That's over. That's done. We don't need apostles anymore. God did that to verify the Word. He said, the things that I've given you and trust to faithful men who built it... The apostle said that. Jesus said to the disciples on the mountain, Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. And then Paul said, The things you've heard from me in the presence of faithful men and trust also to faithful men who will be able to teach others likewise. But what about this signs and wonders thing? Does God still work signs and wonders? Does God still do things that we can't explain? Well, yeah. You bet He does. <clears throat> so should we ask God to perform signs and wonders? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. God, as I preach Your Word, verify this Word with power. If you want to work a sign and a wonder, hey, that's completely up to you, God. 
I'm not going to shut the door and say, well, you don't do that anymore. He does not do what He did with the apostles anymore. He does not. But that doesn't mean that He can't act and intervene directly into history to do what He wants to do, to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Does God still heal sick people? Well, yes, He does. Should we pray that He heals sick people? Yes! That's a sign. That's a wonder. That's a miracle. So we should pray for those things. And I think we're so scared of them. Uh, well, that, that with the apostles, we don't need that anymore. I think we're wrong to say that. God, do what you want to do. Show yourself to be strong. I'll say this. How many signs and wonders did Jesus perform and yet people didn't believe? It's not going to guarantee salvation for people if God steps in and works a miracle. Listen to me. The very act of salvation is a miracle. It's resurrection from the dead. Dead people live. And God enters into the heart of man. That's a miracle. So yes, pray for signs and wonders. But don't try to be an apostle because you're not. Paul said, I do it by word and deed. I do it by signs and wonders. I've lost my place. There we go. By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Word and deed, signs and wonders, and finally and firmly by the power of the Spirit of God. It cannot be overstated, and we've talked about it over and over again. If God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. Paul's ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so must ours be. If you're going to get anything done for God, God the Holy Spirit has to be the power behind it. And the good news is, He is the power behind it. And that's awesome. So then, how effective was Paul in word and deed, in signs and wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, y'all ain't ready for this. So that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> what? Let me show you something. Forgot I was plugged up here. Okay, see the see this arrow down here by the sea? That's Jerusalem. Follow the arrow up. That's Illyricum, right up there by Italy. Paul says, from down here to all the way up here. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's bigger than Raleigh County, y'all. That's bigger than West Virginia. And good thing he had airplanes and stuff because he'd have never made it all the way up there. Let me tell you something. When something's empowered by the Holy Spirit, hard to explain. These people walked everywhere they went. They might have rode a donkey every now and then, maybe a horse. I don't have the mile measurement. I don't know how many miles that is. But I know it's a lot. And he did a lot in not a lot of time. And he says, boldly, all the way from southern Israel all the way up to near Italy. He didn't quite see Rome, but he got close, y'all. 
He's covered and accomplished the work that God sent him to do in that whole area. Now, does that mean that he went into every city, town, hamlet, village and spoke to every person? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he's been in the major metropolitan areas and has spread his seed faithfully and has seen the fruit of it all the way through that area so that he feels like and can see the confirmation of the fact that it's time to find new areas where he can do this type of work. He says, I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. I want to preach Christ where He's never been named before. And that is His holy ambition. I make it my ambition to preach Christ. He doesn't say holy. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Wow. Wow. That's pretty effective. And it's still going on. That's right. The seeds have spread to seeds, have spread to seeds. And Paul's mode of operation is clear. Preach the gospel. Now note the emphasis on the word part. He doesn't say he's clothing and feeding people. I'm sure he did. But he says his goal, his mode of operation, his ambition is to preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached before. Not that he won't preach the gospel in places where it has been heard before, But his primary goal is to find places that haven't heard it and then preach it. And he says he makes it his ambition to do this. Paul had a calling specifically from God, and that was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That would mean getting out of Jewish permeated culture, which is what he was comfortable with, and reaching those who had not heard of what happened in Israel during the life of Jesus. Telling a fantastic, crazy story about a man who was God, who died and came back to life. Hannah said she was talking to a little boy yesterday at Day of Hope. And the little boy said, you mean he died on purpose? She said, yep. It's a crazy story, y'all. And he traveled the whole world preaching it and teaching it. And it was his ambition to do that. Paul not only accepted the divine call, but he made it his ambition to fulfill that call. And if you remember what God said, what Jesus said to Ananias was, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And Paul said, I hear you. Not only do I accept it, but I make it my ambition to fulfill that calling. The words we see as I make it my ambition are a rendering of a single Greek word which means to strive earnestly and to make it one's aim. Paul had a divine directive and he made that the passion of his life. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Jesus, give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. Paul did that. That directive and that passion are fueled by God's written word, which Paul quotes to end our passage today. This quote is from Isaiah 52, 15. As it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. We saw last week that the Old Testament confirms over and over that God has always spoke, has always spoken of reaching the Gentiles, those non-Jews that made up the rest of the world. <clears throat> and we see that again here. And Paul sees his calling and his passion in this verse. 
Those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And it's not, a, it's not like, a, man, I, I think God can do this. He says, I've got the written revealed Word of God that says this is going to happen. So I make it my ambition. Paul's life proclaims both the hallelujah and the amen to that verse. Others would do the work to build on someone else's foundation, but not Paul. That was not his calling. That was not his passion. He may not have been as fast as other people, but he knew what he needed to do and he made it his single ambition. Like Jerry Rice. I may not be fast, but I can do a lot of other things to overcome that. And that's what I'm going to do. So, how do we apply all this quickly? A thousand things we could pull out of these verses. And I don't know that I'm exaggerating much. We go a lot of ways. We got three points. Excuse me. The first point is instruct one another. This is a call to body life. This is a call to the sufficiency of the local congregation. This is a call to be the church. Not just come to church. Paul said, I'm confident that you are able to instruct one another. So the application for us is, instruct one another. Do that work. Paul said he knew the Romans were full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now my question is, would he and could he say that about us today? Us today, here, in this building. This church that is assembled here in this building. The people are the church, not the building. You say, I've heard you say that before. Well, you'll hear me say it again before we see Jesus, okay? Unless He comes right now. I think He would. I think He should be able to. And please hear me say this personally. There are those who are far wiser, far more biblically minded. There are those who have been through much deeper water than me that you should benefit from and pay attention to. Seek out counselors from these people. Seek out people to help you and instruct you. Not just me on Sunday morning when I'm preaching. If this is all the instruction you get, that's all right, but it's not best. Look around you. There is wisdom. There is power in what these people have to share with you. Instruct one another, which means you've got to be purposeful in being in each other's lives. It means you've got to walk across the foyer, reach across the coffee room and say, Hey, I need your help in something. Can I ask you some questions? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's anybody here that would say, No, don't have time for you, sorry. If they do, talk to me. And I'll roll my eyes and say, I can't believe somebody did that. (laughs) Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. One another, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is church life, y'all. People say they don't need church. They're wrong. They're not bad. They're just wrong. You can't do the Christian life without the church. You cannot. You can't. Did I say that yet? You cannot. Stir one another up. Instruct one another. 
That's point one. Point two, preach the gospel in word and in deed. Yes, Matthew 5.16, I talked about it earlier. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Absolutely do that. And, I didn't say but, and preach the gospel. Preach the words of the gospel with your mouth, with your pen, with your keyboard, with your sign language. However you can communicate the words of the gospel, preach it. Because people need to hear it. They need to see it. They need to read it. We are in an increasingly post-Christian society and culture. You would be surprised how many people have not heard the gospel that you meet every day. How will you know unless you ask them? Amanda and Hannah were talking yesterday about the Day of Hope. And there were people that they talked to who had never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of Jesus in rural southern West Virginia. Absolutely give them some shoes. Absolutely give them a meal. And absolutely preach the gospel to them. We have some really fertile soil to preach the biblical gospel in. Yes, live it, and yes, preach it. Proclaim it. Use your words to tell the story. We sang the story this morning in the Jerusalem song. That is good, by the way. Preach it, proclaim it. Use your words to tell the story how we're all sinners. We all need forgiveness. And how that forgiveness comes from Jesus who lived and died without sinning so He could be punished for our sins. How He died. How He was buried. How He was resurrected. How He showed Himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days before He ascended into heaven where He is seated at God's right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us. Tell that story. And tell people there is forgiveness for their sins. There is a future and a promise of heaven and eternity with God, not suffering the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed that wrath for us. Tell that story. Preach that gospel. Why? Because, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Where's the power of God for salvation? It's in the gospel. So preach it. Proclaim it. Live it, yes. And preach it. People will not be saved any other way. But you can't fail. You cannot fail. It's foolproof. You preach the gospel, people will be saved. Not everybody. Preach the gospel. Word and deed. Your deeds are good and they are necessary and your words are the carriers of the very power of God to save people. (coughs) Instruct one another. Preach the gospel in word and deed. And point three, last point. Listen to me, please. Find God's calling and make it your ambition. Paul knew that he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles and he pursued it with his whole being. Now let me ask you this question as you sit here this morning. 
What do you know that God has called you to? Well, I don't know. Should I go overseas? Should I, I don't know. Should I quit my job? Should I, are you a husband? Then God's called you to be a husband. Are you a wife? Then God's called you to be a wife. Are you a father, a mother? Are you a child in a family? Do you work somewhere? Do you worship with other believers? These are the things that God has called you to. You have a lot of roles and a lot of titles in your life, but do you know how God would have you to walk in each of them? We don't have to search the Scriptures for some obscure ethereal calling from God. A lot of people are saying, I'm just waiting to see what my calling is. Like it's a mystical moment where everything becomes clear. The clouds part and Jesus comes down and says, you should move to South Africa. Oh, okay. I'll do that. No. Rather, we are to make it our ambition to live in such a way that it is evident that our passion is to know Jesus and make Him known in whatever role we may be in. It may be foreign missions. It may be motherhood. It may be writing. It may be music. It may be data entry. But whatever it is, do it in such a way that shows that the glory of God is your chief concern. Paul would say to the Colossians, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. He would tell the Corinthians, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is your calling. Now will you make it your ambition to live that way? No better place in Scripture to end than Philippians 3, 7-16. St. Paul, who made it his ambition to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And we'll finish with this. Whatever gain I had, but, sorry, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him." and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Jesus... Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. Listen, we get caught up in so many things that just don't matter. You can't be what you're not called to be. You may not have the ministry or the gifts or the position that someone else has. Don't waste your time trying to be like someone or like everyone else. We have good, pure intentions but we should focus on what draws us closer to Jesus and pursue that above all else. Make it your ambition. 
to be the best husband, the best wife, the best child, the best worker that you can be in order that you may know Christ and make Him known by deeds and by words as we instruct one another and nothing is of higher importance in our life than that. Jerry Rice was never the fastest receiver in the NFL. But today, because of what he pursued, because he knew what was important, he very well may be the best ever. Let's be those whose passions are pure and holy, whose desire is to please the Lord, not men or the Word or the fads of the time. I don't have to be the fastest or the best or the most liked. I just need to love Jesus more today than I did yesterday. And I just need to do what He's put before me to the best of His ability. In the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. One pure and holy passion. One magnificent obsession. Jesus, give us one glorious ambition for our lives. May it be in my life. May it be in your life. Let's pray. God, that statement, we get caught up in things that just don't matter. May it not be our story. But may our story be that of what Paul said, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward by the power of Your Spirit to what lies ahead of us. God, help us to silence the noise around us that calls out for our attention and our affection and give us a heart to know and to show Jesus Christ to the world around us. And God, the din of noise increases day by day by day by day. The media tells us what we should believe. The government tells us what we should do. Silence them all in our hearts and our minds, God. And give us one pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after you we need your help and we trust that you will help us because you are good and because of your glory's sake and our good you will do these things in and through us we trust it now in jesus name amen would you stand and receive doxology now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.